We are looking into WTO reform as a top political priority because I think we are facing an extremely difficult situation where we could actually see a collapse of the rule-based trading system. What impact does the pandemic have on the global trading system? What role will trade play in the global recovery and global economy of the future? After COVID-19, what steps are needed to make the trading system more sustainable and more inclusive? These are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Korteweg of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, a series of podcast conversations with leading thinkers on the future of international trade. My name is Rem Korteweg. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands. And today we're going to discuss the state of the World Trade Organization. Global trade rules, will the WTO reform? Now, I'm joined today by three Olympians of international trade policy from Japan, the United States, and the European Union. From Tokyo, Tatsuya Watanabe, Vice President of Japan's Research Institute of Economy, Trade, and Industry, Rieti, joins us. Most recently, Tatsuya-san was the Director General for Trade Policy at Japan's Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry, commonly referred to as METI. And before that, he was the Director General at the Multilateral Trade System Department. He knows the WTO inside out. And from Washington, we're joined by Jennifer Hillman. Professor Hillman is a Senior Fellow for Trade and International Political Economy at the Council on Foreign Relations, and of course previously she was one of the seven members from around the world serving on the World Trade Organization's appellate body. And finally, from Brussels, I'm joined by Ignacio Garcia Bercero, who works at the European Commission's DG Trade and currently oversees activities related to multilateral affairs, strategy, analysis, and evaluation, which includes the WTO and the G7. He is also one of the main thinkers behind the EU's new trade strategy. Now, today we want to focus on three elements related to WTO reform. First of all, how to plug the gaps in WTO trade rules. Secondly, how to reform the dispute settlement body. And thirdly, how to get all members of the WTO on board with a reform package. Now, trilateral cooperation between Japan, the United States, and the European Union has been instrumental in getting global discussions going about WTO reform. Today, we have a new director general at the WTO, a new US administration, as well as a new EU trade strategy. That raises the question, drawing on recent cooperation in that trilateral context, how can gaps in global trade rules be addressed? And key to this is the question of how to address gaps in the trade rules concerning industrial subsidies. Now, Ignacio, first of all, over to you. 
What is the problem that needs to be solved regarding industrial subsidies? Yes, thank you very much, Ren, and it's a big pleasure to have this uh, opportunity to have this conversation. Now, I think the fundamental issue on which we have a gap at this point in time in the International Rule Book is that the state uh, plays a very important role uh, in the economy of uh, all trading partners, but particularly in the case of China, the state has a huge role uh, in the economy. And the rules which are intended to ensure that there is a level playing field, that there is no competitive distortions due to intervention by the state, are not sufficiently fit for purpose. There are international rules on industrial subsidies. Those were agreed in the Uruguay round, but clearly they are not enough to tackle the challenges about how to ensure a level playing field for competition. And that, I think, is what uh, we started working uh, together uh, with the United States and Japan already during the Trump uh, administration. I think we made significant uh, progress. We reached a common understanding about uh, how rules on industrial subsidies should be made stronger by prohibiting the certain types uh, of industrial subsidies, by creating a stronger uh, commitments uh, to, to transparency. So there was, at, in January, of last year, a text that was agreed by the by the three ministers in the trilateral. And we think that the time has now come to move beyond this and to be able to work together first trilaterally, but then in a broader setting to see how the rules of the WTO can be adapted to be responsive to the need to ensure a level playing field when it comes to tackling competitive distortions. This is, by the way, not only an issue of industrial subsidies. Industrial subsidies is a very important part of the discussion, but there's also a need to tackle the question of the role of state-owned enterprises. A lot of the subsidies which are being provided by certain countries are subsidies which are being provided by state-owned enterprises. So having the effective rules which ensure transparency about the work of state-owned enterprises, that they act in accordance with commercial considerations, is absolutely critical. And also we need to be able to look into some other issues like how to avoid forced technology transfers and how to tackle other forms of competitive uh, distortions. Now, I don't think, quite frankly, it should be too difficult uh, for the Japan and the United, the United States and the European Union to reach a common understanding on those issues. Of course, there are some issues which we did not discuss solely in the past, which I think we need to discuss at this point in time, because if we look into subsidies, we need to have a bit more of a balanced approach. There are some forms of subsidies which can have positive externalities and that all governments are going to, to be providing. But we need to ensure that we agree about the criteria that apply in order to avoid uh, uh, distortions. But we need to talk about uh, green subsidies, uh, particularly those which are related to climate and environmental protection. That's something which we did not discuss in the past in the trilateral, but I think we need uh, to discuss it now. Now, be, but what I think is even more important is that beyond the trilateral, we need to be able to outreach. And we need to be able to reach first other like-minded countries so that we have a significant group of countries that want to work together in the developing in the development of these rules. We should do this within the WTO framework. 
as an open plurilateral. And it should be very, very clear that we, of course, we would wish China and other major emerging economies to also be ready to engage in, this, uh, in these discussions. So this is basically what we would be very much uh, suggesting needs to be done to, needs to be done now. We hope uh, that we will be able to engage uh, with the new U.S. administration with Japan to come forward uh, in the not uh, too distant future with some uh, common ideas about how these rules that uh, deal with the role of the state in the economy can be modernized. Because after all, this is one of the big sources of tension in the trading system. And if you don't have better rules to tackle that, inevitably, this is actually going to result in a gross and proliferation of trade, uh, of trade uh, conflicts. So I think I would leave it uh, there, but I mean, obviously, very happy to further discuss. No, that's that's fantastic, and let's unpack a number of those points that you that you mentioned. And first of all, just to ask Jennifer, to what extent do you agree with Ignacio's assessment that it will be fairly easy to achieve an understanding between the EU, Japan, and the United States when it comes to coming up with a a new package on addressing industrial subsidies, and perhaps more specifically? To what extent an agreement can be reached on the circumstances when countervailing measures can be adopted uh, regarding industrial subsidies? And then I want to ask afterwards to Tetsuya-san about this issue of green green boxing the uh, subsidies and so-called the positive externalities. Well, thank you very much. And again, it's an honor for me, too, to, to join uh, this, this distinguished panel. Um, I'll say first, as a starter, I totally agree with, with Ignacio and with the premise of your question. If I had to say the one sort of failure of the WTO rules, it has been to discipline subsidies. And it's clear that an awful lot of the difficulties we're seeing right now Uh, particularly coming out of China, is because of the tremendous amount of overproduction and overcapacity that has been created on the backs of industrial subsidies. So there's no doubt that this is a critical issue to get the WTO back on track, is solving this problem of what to do about industrial subsidies. And I think the work of the trilateral cooperative effort between the United States, the EU, and Japan, to me, has done a very good job on two of the three serious problems with subsidies. And when I say that, for me, the problem is first a definitional one, that it has been in the past too hard uh, to figure out how do you define a subsidy. Again, the rules are very clear. It's a financial contribution by a government or public body that confers a benefit. I mean, so those words and that text is very clear. But when you get down to it, you know, what is a public body? How do you show whether or not it's really, if you will, the government that's provided it? How do you really show uh, whether there's been a benefit. You know, again, if the economy is one that's completely run by or or prices are all manipulated by the state. So the, the, the basic definitional issue, I think the trilateral cooperative process has done a very good job. The second big problem that we've had in the past is on evidence. It's just been too hard, particularly in economies that are not transparent, to get your arms around the evidence itself. And again, I think the trilateral effort has done a lot to try to think about When can you have a rebuttable presumption? When can you shift, if you will, the burden of proof to demonstrate that subsidy to to the grantor of the subsidy rather than putting it all on the country that's doing the complaining? So on those two issues, I think the answer is yes. Can you get an agreement and can you get it fairly readily? The problem for me is the third major failing, which is the remedy itself. Is the remedy effective? And when you say effective, effective at what? And there, I think the problem is that the line 
lion's share of the remedy has been to impose a countervailing duty, countervailing measure that may be okay to the extent that the goods are coming into your market and what you're doing is applying a duty at future imports coming into your market. The problem is that that countervailing duty then just pushes those subsidized goods out into everybody else's market and they haven't really gotten at the fundamental problem which is the creation of so much excess capacity so much overproduction they haven't really created a deterrence to the granting of the subsidy in the first place and the second you know sort of remedy if you will for for a subsidies case is in essence an adverse effects finding at the WTO where the remedy is to say to the grantor of the subsidy remove the adverse effects of the subsidy but again we have to remember that in the WTO remedies are prospective so the question becomes what does it mean to prospectively remove the adverse effects of the subsidy the problem is the steel plant or the aluminum plant is up and running and putting lots of steel and aluminum out into the market by the time you know years down the road you get this finding that there has been adverse effects created by the subsidy it's too late it's too late for the other companies that have to compete. It's too late for what it's done at suppressing prices in the world. So again, I think a lot of effort is going to have to be made to thinking about what are better disciplines on subsidies. And then the one other really significant point that I would say is my concern is that we have now actually gotten to the place where the dispute between China and, if you will, the rest of the world has grown much, much more substantial because you now have China refusing to join a consensus that an underlying principle of the World Trade Organization is based on market economics, where China is now saying they do not agree with that. And yet, again, if you look at what did China promise when it joined the WTO, I'm going to read you just one sentence out of one, you know, definitive commitment by China. This is a legally binding commitment in paragraph 46 of its of its working party report, but is legally binding language. The representatives of China further confirmed that China would ensure that all state-owned and state-invested enterprises would make purchases and sales based solely on commercial considerations, e.g. price, quality, marketability, and availability, and that the enterprises of other WTO members would have an adequate opportunity to compete for sales to and purchases from these enterprises on non-discriminatory terms and conditions. That's a legally binding commitment on China, and I think Everybody would suggest that what we've seen over the last number of years is a failure of China to live up to that commitment. And now what you're seeing is effectively a denial by China that this notion of commercial considerations, you know, sort of market-based, you know, again, price, quality, market availability, availability is even something that is embedded within the WTO, notwithstanding this binding commitment. So I, I definitely think this notion of how do we skin this cat on industrial subsidies is, you know, a central part of what we've got to do moving forward. Is the solution then different remedies or is the solution a better dispute settlement mechanism or what's what's the solution in your in your view, Jennifer? In my view, both. 
both a better dispute settlement mechanism. So again, a lot of the work of what the trilateral cooperative has been focusing on in terms of, again, these notions of defining a subsidy and evidence and how the process works. So yes, there has to be a better process for enforcing rules. But then again, I think at the heart, you're going to need to rethink some of the different rules. I mean, one model that you could look at, it would be what happened when we adopted for the first time disciplines on agriculture subsidies, where there was a combination of this idea of green light subsidies, amber, you know, sort of discipline subsidies, and then red light subsidies. So again, a very different notion of already sort of a priori categorizing them, significant requirements for notifications, a split between domestic subsidies and export subsidies. So again, you, you start to parse that out. But then overall, with respect to agriculture, was a cap on the total amount of expenditures. Uh, and so you had this notion that you would limit the total amount. Each country can choose how to play around with its amounts, but there's an overall cap. And obviously the idea would be then to slowly bring down those caps to the extent that subsidies are viewed as distorting trade. That may be a model that you might have to look to for industrial subsidies, where you think about green lighting, if you will, the climate change related, maybe even you know global health related, pandemic related subsidies, but you come up with much stronger sort of red light disciplines on the subsidies that are clearly distorting international trade. And I want to bring in uh, Tetsuya-san at the, at the moment. I mean, for, from your vantage point in, in Tokyo, uh, Tetsuya-san, what's the, the mood like when it comes to addressing the distorting effect of uh, primarily Chinese industrial subsidies? And, and is there, do you think, an appetite for looking at the issue of remedies as Jennifer explained, when it comes to addressing some of the, of the gaps in their ability to undo the harm that then has already been done. I'm curious how you, how you see what, uh, what Jennifer and, and Ignacio have just been telling us. Thank you very much. Uh, first of all, I'm very honored to join this distinguished panel. And uh, on the industrial subsidy, Ignacio and Jennifer touched upon the basic point that we started off this discussion on the trilateral process. Uh, the fundamental issue is uh, how to ensure level playing field in the multilateral trading system, and also to what extent uh, government can intervene in the economy. That's a sort of a starting point of discussion. And uh, on this one, I think trilateral process between Japan and the uh, EU and the United States are doing a very good job. And I, th- I think among the trilateral partners, uh, putting aside the uh, uh, Detail, technical points, but uh, we have sort of arrived at uh, common understanding how, what uh, are the issues we need to strengthen discipline on the industrial subsidies and uh, what kind of approach we need to uh, take. Uh, so, of course, we have to so, uh, sort out the uh, technical points in detail, and uh, of course, detail is very important on this issue, but uh, I think uh, we arrived at the very good uh, commanding point on these uh, issues. As Ignacio mentioned that uh, we need to solve the among ourselves on the details and and in parallel we have to outreach other like-minded partners in capitals and in Geneva as well. And the specific point on, on positive externalities and the green box uh, for like uh, climate uh, change subsidies and uh, etc. 
we are very open to look, look at this kind of green box discussion. And uh, on the remedies, I, I sort of agree to the Jennifer's point that we need to address uh, this issue by strengthening uh, efficiencies of a toolbox to the fundamental issue. Of course, we need to discuss further in detail, but uh, that's a kind of a sentiment from Tokyo side. And, and do you think that this follow-up discussion, if I can call it that, sort of a trilateral 2.0, on the green boxing, on perhaps updated remedies. Is that something that needs to take place in a trilateral context, or is that something that can, that can be presented at a plurilateral level immediately? That's a very important point. And uh, of course, on the green box idea, we need to uh, further cook the idea, what kind of uh, subsidy we need to make, put it in, into the green box, or even if uh, if we agree to, we have such kind of box uh, at the beginning. That kind of discussion, uh, I think uh, we need among the trilateral partners. And then if uh, we have uh, some common understanding of the idea itself, uh, we need to outreach other countries. And I think uh, since the US has just launched the new administration, I, and I, I think uh, they need time to look into the idea itself. That's my impression. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to continue our conversation on global trade rules. Will the WTO reform? At a time of sluggish and uneven global growth, when geopolitics and the pandemic are stressing the rules-based global system, Conversations about international trade and its contribution to global prosperity have never been more important. If you would like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021. This series is brought to you by AIG and its partners, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, the Jack Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Brittlesman Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series. We're back from our break. I'm joined by Tetsuya Watanabe, Ignacio Garcia Bracero, and Jennifer Hillman for our conversation on global trade rules, will the WTO reform? And there was one other thing that I wanted to follow up with you on, uh, Tetsuya-san, is that, as Ignacio mentioned, it's not just about industrial subsidies. We're also talking about um, rules regarding the role of state-owned enterprises or forced technology transfers. But a whole different discussion inside the WTO is about updating rules to be fit for, say, the 21st century, for the digital domain, for e-commerce. How, how do you see that discussion developing? Is that something that needs to be primarily in the trilateral context? Or what's the recipe to deal with um, the requirement for more trade facilitation in the e-commerce and digital space? Just back to your earlier point on, on state-owned enterprise and the tech transfer, I think part of the issue have been already discussed among the trilateral process, but uh, the trilateral is not, not a sort of a grouping 
in the end, it needs to hold the membership in the WTO. So that's one thing. And you, you touched upon the e-commerce joint statement initiative. And actually, Japan and Australia and Singapore uh, worked as a co-conveners uh, uh, for the like, I mean, e-commerce joint statement initiatives uh, in Geneva now, over 80 members. Uh, participate in the discussion. And uh, uh, the important thing is uh, we need to update the WTO rulebook to, to the reality of the global trade and the technological de development. And uh, in this regard, uh, I think e-commerce initiative doing a very good job. Of course, uh, even among the over 80 members, uh, there are different perspectives and views uh, on specific issues. But uh, building upon the consensus on and finding a common ground, uh, we can build on, on our effort. Of course, uh, on e-commerce issues, uh, we have difficult issues like uh, data-free flow and uh, privacy. Even among the EU, Japan, and the United States, uh, there are different perspectives on, on these core issues. If we then talk to China on, on, on the data-free flow issues, uh, discussion may be more difficult. But uh, mm. there are areas we can find the common ground and then we need, we can touch upon the core issues and difficult issues uh, among like-minded members. That, that, that's kind of my idea. And Jennifer, listening to this conversation, there's on the one hand the issue of industrial subsidies, rules need to be adapted, uh, new types of remedies perhaps need to be created. There is a new rule book that needs to emerge on e-commerce and digital. You already mentioned it in your earlier statement that this also requires a functioning dispute settlement body in order to, to govern this. We all know about the problems that the appellate body confronts. Do you see momentum in Washington to move towards trying to find a solution on the appellate body how should we call it the, the the stasis that is currently that it currently finds itself in? Well, let me just start by saying uh, I don't in any way speak for the Biden administration, and unfortunately, I just I think the answer is we don't know yet. I will say uh, a couple of things that we do know, uh, which is that the incoming Biden administration has done, you know, sort of continued what had happened in the Trump administration, which was to file appeals, as they call it, into the void. In other words, if you think about it, when the WTO dispute settlement body sort of came crashing down in the sense that the appellate body was blocked in December of 2019. At that time, I would say there was a lot of hope that, again, very successful, capable Ambassador David Walker from New Zealand was appointed to try to come up with a solution to the appellate body crisis. So you had this ongoing effort. You had this general perception of, oh, no, people won't go over this major gulf of actually, you know, appealing cases, quote, into the void, meaning there was no existing appellate body to hear the case. So filing an appeal effectively meant blocking the adoption of the panel report, because under the WTO rules, as long as an appeal is pending, uh, you're not, you're, you can't do anything with the case. You can't insist on implementing it. You can't, in essence, push another country to respond while an appeal is pending. And obviously, if there's no appellate body, the appeal just pens forever. So there was this sense of, oh, countries won't do that. I mean, that's too dramatic. That's too much of a push. And yet, if you look at what's actually happened, you know, again, we've had nine cases.
cases appealed into the void, four by the United States and one each, you know, by a variety of other countries. So we are seeing this real push on on whether or not we have a binding dispute settlement mechanism or not. And the answer is increasingly not. Again, if countries don't want to comply, all you need to do is file a notice of appeal. So again, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about it. And on the other hand, you've seen, again, the growth of this idea of a multi-party interim arbitration arrangement, in other words, to use arbitration and, and the provisions that are already there in the dispute settlement system in Article 25 to move ahead with an alternative way of doing appeals. There's been a lot of sort of meat on the bones, if you will, of, of this MPIA process. Uh, but again, it rem- the United States remains outside of that process. Other major countries remain outside of that process. It remains to be seen. It also remains to be seen whether or not fixing the WTO dispute settlement system can be done sort of separate and apart from other fixes, if you will, within the problems of the dispute settlement system. You know, and here, uh, you know, again, I read some sort of on the one hand, good news and bad news from the European Union's issuance of its new trade policy review with its annex that really talks about reforming of the WTO because the EU has now clearly stated, and I, and I do think it's important for, you know, sort of Americans to hear this message that the concerns that the United States raised about the appellate body are valid concerns. Because for a long time, the argument was that this was just the United States raising these concerns, whether anybody shared them or not was unclear, and the United States being very frustrated that it wasn't able to get anywhere because uh, countries weren't taking seriously the United States' complaints. No doubt about it. Countries are now taking very seriously the U.S. concerns, and I think an important message coming out of the EU that many of these concerns are valid, uh, which I think at least suggests that there may be ways to fix these concerns. The question now becomes whether you can fix the dispute settlement system as a one-off or whether the fix of the WTO dispute settlement system has to be accompanied by fixes in the other areas, in the ability to negotiate, in the role of the secretariat, in transparency and notifications, and in these subsidy issues, whether it has to be part of one sort of bigger package, which obviously is harder. Well, let's ask the EU, um, let's ask Ignacio whether a consensus can be reached, whether the the annex to the EU's trade policy review, whether that is sufficient ground for achieving a US-EU understanding on uh, reform of the appellate body. And then in the next segment, let's talk a little bit about the politics of, of how, to, how to get there inside a multinational international organization of 163 members. But Ignacio, on, on Jennifer's challenge, what are the red lines that the EU has? And is what you've been hearing from Washington ground for finding a consensus? Uh, yes, thank you, Ren. But if you allow me, I would also want to step back uh, for a second uh, and to make a comment on some of the other uh, important issues that have been raised by uh, Suya San and by Jennifer. Now, I don't think that uh, we are talking into WTO reform as something that we want to do simply because we love the WTO as an institution. We are looking into WTO reform as a top political priority. Because I think we are facing an extremely difficult situation where we could actually see a collapse of the rule-based uh, trading system. 
And we needed to be able to work together with the United States, to work together with Japan and others to prevent this front happening. Now, in order to have a system which is stable, you need to have rules which are modernized, which respond to the current challenges of the global economy. And that's basically what we have been talking about, about subsidies, e-commerce. You need to be able to have also a proper way of deliberating about the big challenges that we are all facing together, like climate change. You need to be able to have a forum for deliberation on the challenges relating to sustainable development. But there's no point of actually having the rules if you don't have a mechanism to enforce them. And a situation in which we would continue to have for two, three, four years a non-functioning dispute settlement system, which is what we currently actually uh, have, it is a situation that would result in a total collapse of the global trading system. And that's why we think it's extremely important uh, to find also a way forward uh, to solve uh, the issues relating to WTO uh, dispute settlement. I think Jennifer has quite rightly pointed out uh, that we very deliberately wanted to give a signal to the United States that we accepted the validity of many of the criticisms that they have been making about the jurisprudential approach of the operating body, that we were ready to enter into a discussion with an open mind to try to find a way forward to restore a functioning dispute settlement system. And that, quite frankly, there are only two fundamental principles that for us always need to be there, because in the absence of those principles, it's very difficult to see how you can have a properly functioning dispute settlement system, which is legitimate. So that's why we always make clear we should not move away from the negative consensus rule. You need to have a system that prevents uh, the possibility of it being blocked by, by one or several parties. So the negative consensus rules continues to be fundamental. And for legitimacy purposes, for consistency purposes, you need to have an independent uh, appellate body. Provided that we can't uh, have a common understanding on, on those two points, I think, in my view, everything is really up to, to discussion. Uh, we certainly quite uh, ready to enter into a deliberation with the United States and with others to try to find uh, a way forward uh, to arrive at a system which is uh, functioning better than it did over the last 25 years. Although I would say, we think that the system in overall terms performed quite well, although there are clearly things that need to be improved. Now, what those elements are, I don't think it's necessary here that these are issues to be laid out, but we certainly think it's also going to be important to be sufficiently focused. I think it will be important to have a clear understanding from the United States about what are the issues that they think they need to be corrected and that then we identified a very focused work program to try to, to find a resolution on those within a relatively manageable time frame. Now, we know this is not going to be solved between now and NC12. I think we are realistic. We think that the realistic objective should be by NC12 to have enough clarity about what the United States thinks needs to be fixed in terms of the dispute settlement system, to identify on that basis a sufficiently focused work program that allows a resolution of these issues that makes it possible to have a functioning appellate body no later than MC13. 
I would see that that has been a, a realistic uh, time frame. And of course, we are very, very much hoping that it will be possible to engage uh, with the current administration in a manner which unfortunately was not really possible with the previous one, not for lack of trying. I mean, I can assure the Jennifer that there were quite a few attempts uh, to open up uh, a discussion to try to find uh, a way forward with the previous administration, but that was not uh, really possible. And as I said, we are quite uh, ready to enter into that uh, discussion uh, as I, um, only if you want to call in bed lines only with these two important uh, principles negative consensus rule and independent appellate body and an independent appellate body is not in contradiction with accountability you can have an institution which is independent and which at the same time is more accountable to members and i agree that there's a need to look into issues that go beyond the worker principles there's a need to look into the way that the appellate body secretariat is structured there's a need to look into different ideas and perhaps not only to look into the function of the appellate body to also look into some issues relating, for instance, to panel procedures, because there have been a lot of criticisms about the appellate body going beyond the 90 days. We all know how important timeliness is going to be for the reform of dispute settlement. But if you actually look at what has been happening at the panel phase, you will see that the gap in terms of length of panel procedures is much, much more serious than the one in the appellate body. So I think you should be looking into a discrete and well-identified set of issues. And then, of course, you will need to find uh, an agreement among all WTO members on this. But I think that if the United States and the European Union and Japan uh, can reach uh, a common understanding about the way forward, it should not be so difficult uh, to find uh, a multilateral solution. Thank you for that. That's, a, that's a, also very practical to hear a time frame being being sketched out. And I recall that this is a much more optimistic approach to where we are on on WTO reform than, for instance, the conversations we were having last year around this this same uh, time period. It raises a question, however, which is sort of the last segment, which is how do you actually get these reform plans through the WTO? And it, I want to touch also upon Jennifer's point, whether these reform initiatives should be taken in isolation as one-off tweaks to the system, whether it's industrial subsidies or trade facilitation on e-commerce or the appellate body, or whether they are all part of one big package. Of course, if Japan, the EU, and the United States agree, it's not necessarily the case that China, South Africa, India, or Brazil agree. So how do you get those countries on board with this reform strategy? realizing that if it's presented as a package, they might have a number of requests from their side as well. I want to ask Tetsuya-san first, how, how do you engineer the politics inside the WTO to, to get this reform agenda moving? Uh, thank you, Lem. Uh, before touching upon that, I just would like to uh, touch upon the Appellate body issues and Jennifer uh, gave us a very important message and uh, Ambassador Walker uh, prepared a good ground where we can start discussion again. And uh, she also mentioned that uh, look, uh, other countries like EU and Japan shared the concerns United States based. And uh, she is speaking to the audience in, in Washington. That uh, message I got. And uh, I think. Uh, we have uh, 
sort of a common ground to start the discussion again. And that was very、uh, encouraging message. And on the timeline, I, I, I thought about agree with what、uh, Ignacio mentioned. On the politics of WTO reform, I think、uh, we need to deliver concrete results like、uh, industrial subsidies and、uh, e commerce. And also, we, we need to build back the apparatus body system to the WTO. WTO reform is a very sort of a long term objective. It's a fundamental system of the global trading world. So, of course, we need to deliver concrete things in a timely manner. But、uh, at the same time, we have to think, think a long term. What is the WTO for in the time where the I mean, different、uh, economic system、uh, exist in the global trading scene. And also, we need to address a、uh, common global agenda like climate, climate change issues. But、uh, we can't have a quick answer for these、uh, fundamental questions. But、uh, I think this is a good, good、uh, period where we, we can go back to the basics. What is the WTO for? And what are the、uh, purpose, conflicts of the different economic systems? So, on these basic issues, we need to、uh, discuss、uh, in capital and also in Geneva. I don't deny the importance of the quick delivery on industrial subsidy and e commerce, but、uh, we need to have a, a long term view on the WTO. That's my message. Jennifer, do you, what would you prefer, or given Given that you are very close to the discussions in Washington, is there more appetite for a broader reform package that puts, say, a lot of Christmas decorations on the Christmas tree? Or, or are, are people looking at quick fixes or low hanging fruit to, to achieve positive momentum on WTO reform? Again, I, I think there, you don't know the answer to that.、Uh, there's no question that the United States has put on the table other issues that I think are not going to go away. I mean, one of them is this issue of how do you define a developing country、uh, for purposes of getting, if you will, special privileges or out from under certain obligations, where, again, I think I assume there's going to continue to be a press to come up with some definitions because there is a lot of sort of both concern and I think support. For the notion that it somehow seems unacceptable that you know, countries like South Korea and Singapore and China and others that are major trading partners nonetheless are declaring themselves for purposes of the WTO in certain instances to be developing countries. Now, we've seen movement on that, we've seen countries step forward and say, I'm going to walk away from that, but that remains, I think, a concern. You've seen other US proposals on the table about the importance of notifications、uh, and Being done on a timely basis, and then that's really a central part of what the WTO does is function as that secretariat, that repository. And if notifications are constantly coming in late or not at all, that that presents a problem. So, there's certainly clearly issues that I think the US will, will continue to push for, will continue to be packaged. But I think Tetsayu san has, has, has put his finger on the bigger issue, which is you know, there is now, I think, this big step back、uh, to say. 
kind of what's the point of the WTO? I mean, is it going to remain a relevant, uh, you know, institution going forward? And and to me, there is starting to be this big question of it. And the big question is driven by a lot of the things that we've already talked about. You know, if the WTO cannot do a sufficient job of disciplining China and subsidies and, and, and what is happening in China, kind of what's the point of being in the WTO? If the WTO cannot, and you can fill in the blank. So there is a huge push to say if the WTO is going to remain relevant, it is going to have to address industrial subsidies. It is going to have to address e-commerce. It is going to have to do a lot of the things that we've talked about. And and to me, the question is, you know, does it have to get some wins on the board early or is there time for this longer term approach? Uh, the other sort of clearly moving freight train coming at us is all of the energy and the time and the resources that are going into regional trade agreements. And there's just no question that a whole lot of the things that drove globalization writ large and the far-flung supply chains are starting to change. I mean, you've seen the impact of COVID start to have everybody rethink whether they really want as far-flung a supply chains as they have, and a real push to come back to more regional, uh, again, you know, sort of a, a real shift. I mean, part of it is driven by technology. I mean, everybody went global in part because of labor costs. But as you've seen, the, you know, the growth of robotics and, and technology and other things, you know, labor is less of a factor. And so going far away in order to get lower cost labor is no longer the driving force. So you, you are starting to see the sort of unwinding of some of globalization, if you will, into much more regional and you're clearly seeing a breakdown into, you know, sort of a European market, a North American market, and an Asian market um, with much more trade sort of intra-regional uh, than you would have seen even, even five years ago. And so the question is then, what is the purpose of the WTO if everybody is largely trading regional? And if, if I think about it and I step back from it, the sort of raison d'etre of the WTO, certainly from 1947, the GATT days on um, into the, the Uruguay round, was fundamentally to be a forum for trade liberalization and, and at core, to enforce rules around discrimination. You could not discriminate on the basis of nationality. You could not discriminate as between imported goods and, and domestically produced goods. And the big, to me, as existential question for the WTO is, is that the raison d'etre going forward? Or... Should there be, and I think this is very much reflected in some of the work that Ignacio and the European Commission are doing, do we need to see the WTO pivot to becoming its raison d'etre is sustainable development if you think broadly about the concept of sustainable development, such that sustainable development includes concerns about the environment, but it also con includes concerns about labor, it concerns, you know, largely writ the ability for trade to, to bring uh, a, a greater sense of equality as opposed to exacerbating the gap between the haves and the haves nots, which we've seen. So to me, we are looking at this bigger uh, long-term question that Tetsayu-san started out at of kind of what's the, what's the raison d'etre of the WTO? What should be its purpose? But again, we're, we're struggling with the how do we get there if in the interim period, the perception is that the WTO is no longer relevant. I mean, if it's no longer capable of enforcing even its existing rules, how relevant does it remain? And so I, I do think it's a very important sequencing question of how 
how do we get some wins on the board? How do we get some victories at the WTO that show the world that it remains a relevant, efficient, effective organization in order to uh, have enough time to engage in these bigger, longer-term analyses of, of where the WTO is and ought to be headed? Ignacio, a final word for you. Is, is that the approach moving forward, this two-step, if I can paraphrase Jennifer, on the one hand, trying to get quick wins on the board, perhaps settling for something less than the ambitious changes that we've been talking about just now, but in a way to create breathing space to rejig the narrative about the World Trade Organization to be more focused on sustainable trade practices. Is that the way to get countries like China and South Africa and Brazil on board? Is that the way to avoid plurilateral negotiations taking place outside of a WTO context? How do you see that? I think we need to combine the boldness with realism. Now, before coming into what I think is the right approach to get an outcome on WTO reform, let me make a few comments on the politics. Now, first on the United States. I think the United States needs to make a political decision about how much it is going to be investing over the next three to four years in the WTO in terms of its trade policy. I think if the United States is ready to invest, uh, I'm sure that it would be perfectly possible for the United States to play a leading role in having a coalition of countries that want to see meaningful WTO reform. And that's going to put a lot of political pressure on those countries who might be resisting this reform. But I think this will require a clear political decision by the United States to engage and to give priority to this process of reform of the WTO. And that's going to be something which I think the United States will need to, to decide over the next uh, few months. I think the signals from the, the European Union, the signals from Japan and from many countries that we would want to work uh, together to, with the United States uh, to move forward uh, a reformed uh, agenda. And I think with a new director general in the WTO, if we have a good coalition of reform-minded countries, we really have a possibility to get things uh, to change. China would need uh, to take uh, also some hard decisions. I think that one of the clearest decisions is that China should not pretend in any negotiation that it should claim a special and differential treatment. It's simply not conceivable that a country of the dimension and the significance of China, China can play by any different rules that don't apply to the United States and to the European Union and Japan. We have an immediate uh, testing ground from that, which are the negotiations on fisheries uh, subsidies, where we would very much expect uh, China not to claim uh, any special and differential treatment. And we have other uh, negotiations going on, like domestic regulation on services. Again, there is a good opportunity for China to demonstrate that it's not uh, uh, claiming a special and differential treatment. And China would need to understand that the status quo is not an option, that uh, for the WTO system to function probably they are going to have to accept uh, stronger disciplines in the way that the state intervenes uh, in the economy. And that's the fundamental political uh, choice uh, for uh, China to make. 
the stronger the coalition for reform, the more difficult it's going to be for China uh, to avoid uh, to avoid uh, those choices. And to a certain extent, although the situation is, dif- is different, this also applies uh, to India and South Africa. India and South Africa would need to understand that they cannot actually just be preventing countries from moving ahead when countries wanted to move ahead. So their position on plurilateral agreements is, quite frankly, non-sustainable, and that's something that we have to change. So that is on the overall uh, politics of WTO reform, and a lot is going to depend also on how the United States is going to be positioning itself uh, over the next few months. Now, what it is that uh, you need uh, to do in order to to make uh, the WTO relevant again, I think basically you need I'm simplifying, but I mean, I love to simplify. Basically, you need to do three things. You need to find a way forward to incorporate uh, plurilateral agreements into the WTO, because it's only through plurilateral negotiations that you are going to have the negotiating function to being revitalized in the WTO. E-commerce is being carried out on a plurilateral basis. These negotiations on subsidies and other aspects of competitive neutrality would need to be carried out uh, on a plurilateral basis. And you need to have flexible mechanisms to incorporate the outcome of these plurilateral negotiations into the WTO. And that's something that would need uh, to be resolved for WTO reform to function. Secondly, you need uh, to have a stronger monitoring and policy deliberating function in the WTO. Not everything in the WTO is about rules. It is also the WTO as a forum to monitor trade policies and a forum to foster policy deliberation. And there we really think that sustainable development has to be the guiding principle for this uh, uh, monitoring and deliberating function of the WTO. And that's also the direction in which we think uh, the new director general wants uh, to go. And last but not least, you need to be able to restore a functioning uh, dispute settlement system, which uh, cannot be blocked and where you have an independent appellate body. These are the three fundamental issues which are systemic, which are institutional, uh, which have, do not need to be part of a big single undertaking where everyone puts whatever they want to put into the table. But we really imply thinking about how the WTO as an institution need to be made uh, functioning again. And these are the three critical questions that, in my point of view, need to be fixed between the now and MC13. If we have not found a resolution of these issues by MC13, that is to say the last year, I think, of the Biden administration, I think it's going to be very, very difficult to see how we can actually keep the relevance of the WTO. And I think the Having a world without an institution that ensures that you have a common framework of rules and that you have a mechanism to enforce those rules, not having that kind of institution multilaterally would actually result in a world which is going to be much more prone to conflicts than the one that we already have now. So I think that in my view is the political choice. That's what I think it will be important to see how the key players are going to be positioning themselves over the next few months because MC12 is really important, not because MC12 is going to take many decisions. I mean, we need to finish subsidies negotiations on fisheries and a few things more. But more than anything, MC12 needs to set the direction for this WTO reform process on these three issues, how to accommodate plurilaterals, how to restore the functioning dispute settlement, and how to enhance the monitoring and deliberating function of WTO. I think uh, those, from my point of view, are the key are the key questions. 
Thank you very much for that. Also for invoking a sense of urgency about what's what's at stake. And all three of you in in your own way have addressed that that sense of urgency to ensure the WTO is a relevant international organization. Unfortunately, we've we we've run out of time now. So what I want to do is to thank all three of you very much for your participation in this in this conversation that unfortunately as always was much too short there is much more we can we can talk about we touched on a lot of issues i take away from this conversation this notion of there is momentum behind wto reform it is in some respects existential about ensuring that the organization remains relevant in the 21st century as well as a very clear time frame and an agenda how to ensure that relevance once again a big thank you to jennifer hillman tatsuya watanabe and ignacio garcia bracero for joining me on this conversation for the AIG Global Trade Series 2021. To stay up to date on our next AIG Global Trade Series podcasts, please take a look at our microsite. The AIG Global Trade Series 2021 is an international partnership between AIG, the Georgetown Law Institute of International Economic Law, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, the Jacques Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021 or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>